The Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate has established a strategic plan for how artificial intelligence and machine learning can help the DHS mission. It covers both the technology and people sides of that growing field. For details, Tom Temin spoke with the acting deputy director of the Science and Technology Directorate, John Merrill. The Science and Technology Division is the research and development arm for the Department of Homeland Security. Our goal is to support the DHS Homeland Security Enterprise mission to protect the homeland, the protection of its people. And we focus primarily on R&D, research and development, for many of the operational components of DHS, like CBP, ICE, U.S. Coast Guard, TSA, et cetera, and obviously other components as well. All right, and now you have a strategy for artificial intelligence, machine learning. A lot of agencies are looking at this. Tell us what's basically in this strategy, and, and then we'll talk about how you came up with it. I think it's important to step back a little bit to take a look at how we came to the point where we are today, because we need to understand that how this aligns with the um, administration and their goal related to AI. Our AI ML strategic plan aligns obviously with the department, DHS AI strategy, which was released back in December 3rd of 2020, and the overarching DHS regarding principles associated within that document. These specified how S&T, the research development arm of DHS, would support and address the number of challenges, many of the opportunities with the emerging AI ML could potentially pose to the department. We were also guided by the principles set forth in the executive order 13859, which states the maintaining American leadership in artificial intelligence, and also executive order 13960, which states the promoting the use of trustworthy artificial intelligence in the federal government. The executive orders were the basis for the development of the uh, department's AI strategy, and the Secretary of Homeland Security established five goals to govern the department's approach to integrating AI into our missions in a responsible and trustworthy manner and to successfully mitigate risk for the Homeland Security enterprise. Now, these five goals are assess the potential impact of AI in the Homeland Security enterprise. Goal two is invest in DHS AI capabilities. Goal three was mitigate AI risks to the department and to the homeland. Four is develop a DHS AI workforce. And five, improve public trust and engagement. Now, for the S&T AI ML strategy, our plan laid out an actual path for S&T to advise and assist the department in harnessing the opportunities of AI and ML. Uh, it's important to state that the strategy, it is our goal to build and apply expertise to help the department fulfill the game-changing promise this technology will also help uh, mitigate inherent risks associated with bringing in new cutting-edge capabilities. Does it seek to put a lot of expertise in the components, or is science and technology itself planning to become kind of the repository of best practices that the department could draw on? It's actually all of the above. And the reason I say that is that our ultimate goal is to be the supporting agency for all the DHS components that if they're in the process of implementing AI and capabilities, they can reach back to science and technology for secondary expertise, talk to our scientists that are experts in the area of AI and ML, so that if they want to implement a particular capability, they can reach back to us for advisement for any type of field testing or if they want to, they're in the process of actually just investigating, to send the information to us and we can provide a technical assessment. 
We're speaking with John Merrill. He's acting deputy director of the Technology Center Division of the Science and Technology Directorate at Homeland Security. And what do you do first here? What kind of resources do you need to make this policy, this strategy real? Where will you start? That's a very good question because AI and ML over the past several years has exploded within industry, within academia, as well as within all the national labs and the types of research they do. And one of the biggest challenges that we've run into is competing with them in terms of bringing on subject expertise to help us out. So if the components, as I mentioned earlier, if they come asking for assistance, we need to be able to provide them with that expertise. However, because we are a little bit limited in our resources, we have to reach back and try to partner with the national labs or potentially with universities to bring that expertise on board to assist them in whatever that may be whether it's a tactical level, working with CBP, Coast Guard, ICE, to determine if the AI capabilities they are investigating, or if they need any subject matter expertise to, to conduct some scientific evaluations. It sounds like you might be having a grant program then to bring in partners, say, from academia to evaluate some of the ideas that people bring? Yes, we could potentially use a grant program. We also have partnership with the National Science Foundation, many of the national labs, have specific areas when they're trying to address AI and ML. We also have partnership with FFRDCs, Federally Funded Research and Development Centers, which you can reach back to to get some assistance as well. Yes, and it seems like your division then at ST could almost be a clearinghouse in some ways. And if something is going on at point A in the government and you get a request from point B that is similar, you could kind of get them together perhaps and be a connector. Excellent question. Yes. One of the things that we love doing is the networking and connecting up the appropriate people and appropriate subject matter expertise. And we've done that on a number of occasions. And we like it when our components reach back to us saying, we need some assistance on here. Do you have any reach back into any areas that could potentially be of use to us? Working with the national labs like Lawrence Livermore, Pacific Northwest National Labs, or even like, as I mentioned, guards to the FFRDCs like MITRE or even um, MIT Lincoln Labs. Sure, know them well. And talk more about the goal of improving public trust and engagement, because let's face it, a lot of people that encounter Homeland Security in one form or another, it's often not under the best of circumstances from their point of view. And so what do you mean by improving public trust and engagement using AI and ML? That's a very good question, and it's probably one of the most important aspects of when we try to implement or teach AIML to our components or when we work with other federal partners or within academia. Trustworthy and ethical use of AIML is extremely important. We need to maintain the privacy and what we call CRCL, civil rights and civil liberties, to fully understand the actual impacts of what it is with respect to AIML that we want to implement. When we talk about AIML, it can be any number of things. However, when it comes to the actual utilization of any type of data that's being used, we need to ensure that privacy is maintained. I'll use facial recognition as an example. You need to ensure that whatever facial recognition, how it's going to be used in the AI ML, that privacy is maintained in terms of how it's actually going to be utilized. So in a particular use case, if you're looking at from the question point to the analytics perspective, and the final output or the outcome of what it is that you're trying to do with it and to ensure that whatever the issue is at hand, that the privacy is maintained, 
and the civil rights and civil liberties associated with that particular case is also maintained as well. That's only one of thousands of use cases that are out there, and it is a very tough, tough issue that we need to address. And obviously, we can't address every aspect of privacy in CRCRL. However, we do our best to address as many as we possibly can by going through and looking at various use cases based on a number of different scenarios. All right. And I guess in some ways, it's parallel to the situation TSA had when they first deployed those machines that could see under clothing and there were images of people's outlines and so forth. There was quite a campaign to make sure that people understood that those images were only used at that moment and then discarded. So that's kind of a parallel type of convincing that sometimes you need to do. That is absolutely correct. And on occasions, what we do is we try to provide as much realistic data as possible. So when it comes to ANML utilizations, when I talk about a particular use case, a use case is decomposition of a particular scenario that you might have on hand. And go back to your comment regards to TSA, being able to use the imagery in a similar manner for AI and ML. When you collect that data, you know, bring it in, you need to have it to synthesize in a manner that's going to protect the privacy and civil rights and civil liberties. And it's going to be extremely difficult to look at every aspect of it. However, we will do our best by running and conducting a number of tests to ensure that we maintain the privacy aspect. And are there any good AI or ML projects going on right now that you can talk about? Most of our AI ML that I've been involved with recently are associated at the law enforcement level. However, there is one that I am familiar with. I don't know if you've heard of what we call the Next Generation uh, Non-Wonder Program. Uh, with the proliferation of 5G coming up online and the amount of information that's going to be pushed through to what we call the PSAP, the Public Safety Answering Point for 911 Centers, the amount of information that's going to be coming in to the dispatcher and the call taker is going to be pretty extensive. On the back end, which potentially uses an AI capability that would collect that information that's coming in from a number of sources for, let's say, there's a major event that's going on, and the dispatcher is getting that information in. However, as a human, you cannot synthesize all that information at any one time. So on the back end, what we try to do is be able to collect that information, synthesize it, and only provide the relevant information for the human to make a prudent decision and to pass that information on to the first responder so that they can also have it as they're approaching whatever that incident may be. John Merrill is Acting Deputy Director of the Science and Technology Directorate at the Homeland Security Department. We'll post this interview along with a link to the AI strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, 
with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers as others call them every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship, step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right and you never can go wrong. 
I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters uh, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <laughs> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.